Disclaimer. This episode was recorded before we had a full understanding of the results of the 2020 U.S. presidential election. So if we still sound a little stressed out and frazzled during the episode and towards the end, that's why. Anyway, on with the episode. Squadcast Supreme, where we take a journey into mystery to bring you tales to astonish about the greatest group of superheroes you've never heard of. I'm Zach. And I'm Peter. And today we bring you Giant Size Defenders number four from April 1975. But first things first, Peter, this week we actually have something to talk about in terms of consuming superhero media. Yes. Is this week we've both been listening to the audiobook of maybe one of my favorite Superman stories that I've read. It's Superman by Tom DeHaven. Yeah, I've really been enjoying it as a work of historical fiction, basically set in the early 1930s, and it's really good at kind of exploring the details of that. There are, you know, there are, there are lots of little shout-outs to popular culture of the time, jazz singers, even slightly more obscure ones like Mildred Bailey, which oh, yeah. I really appreciated. I absolutely love this Lex Luthor's backstory. It's Superman has one of my favorite depictions of Clark and my absolute all-time favorite depiction of Lex Luthor. Like, I've said it on Twitter that I prefer the Lex Luthor, who's just an unrepentant piece of shit. And Tom DeHaven's Lex Luthor might be the most unrepentant Lex Luthor of them all. Yeah, uh, spoilers, but Lex ends up kind of torturing one of his dying henchmen by telling him on his deathbed that there is no god. Yeah, like, you're just gonna die, and this is all there is. While the man is dying of cancer. Yeah, and and he's, like, fiddling with the guy's oxygen tank the whole time. It's, It's so awful. There's some other great things he does. Like, he goes to his dead mother's grave just to to lecture her and tell her how disappointed in her she is. 
And Tom DeHaven's Lex Luthor is a great contrast to Smallville's Lex Luthor because the book did come out a couple of years after Smallville started airing. But the way that these two characters like have their interaction with their father, it gives you a great contrast of like just what sort of person you're dealing with in, in each version of Lex Luthor. The Smallville Lex Luthor doesn't get along with his father because he's a terrible person and he resents how his father you know, like doesn't give him respect and always belittles him. Tom DeHaven's Lex Luthor despised his father for being a coward and, and for running away from the cops after he killed a man, which Lex Luthor totally also would have killed someone. It's the running away that he doesn't like. Yeah, just the fact that he chickened out on it. It like, excuse murder, but not cowardice. Like, violence without ruthlessness only made you weak, or something like that. And it's also, like I said, it's one of my favorite depictions of Clark Kent, um, because I think it's the only time, really, like, or at least it's one of the, mo- the best examples I can think of, of a Clark who just has no idea what he's doing. He's doing things that no human being should be able to do. He's already, at like 15, 16 years old, the most powerful man who's ever lived, and he has no idea what that means, or why, or what the hell he's supposed to do. He's just flailing around in the dark, trying to do the best he can. It's very endearing. Yes. Uh... We're a little less than halfway through the book, and I have read this so many times, and I've listened to it so many times, and I'm glad that I've been able to share this with you and uh, with at Evil on Twitter, who you should follow if you like Superman. Um, I sent it to him for his birthday, and I'm glad that I can share this with, pe- with people that I, lo- that I care about. Aww. We'll probably bring you another update on it next week, folks, when things get spicier, we get more Superman-y. And now with all that out of the way, we can go to our featured story of the week. So at some point in 1974, Roy Thomas stepped down from his position as editor of Marvel Comics, and Len Wein took over. And in 1975, one month after this book came out, Len Wein and Dave Cockrum brought Stanley and Jack Kirby's X-Men back in giant-sized X-Men. This is the book that will be given to a baby Chris Claremont, and he'll become the man who will define the X-Men for a generation. for Len Wein. And also, Giant Size Defenders was written for issues three through five by Steve Gerber, the man who, among many other things, created Man-Thing and Howard the Duck. Oh, yeah. You know what I, I really hate? Whenever I hear Steve Gerber's name, I think to myself, oh, they offered him Marvel and he turned them down. And that's why Marvel is the way it is. Because it's just a Steve Gerber comic, but bad. Ah. Yeah, because, you know, Steve Gerber really liked writing stories about, like, everyman who encountered weirdness and just the inherent absurdity of modern society. That's basically what Howard the Duck is. And that's also what Marvel is, except Marvel is incoherent and bad. Marvel also said that Wolverine is evolved from an actual Wolverine, right? Well, that was one of the possible backstories for Wolverine back when he was first created, so I'm slightly more forgiving of that because it's ridiculous, but there is precedent. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I when, must... I, when, when you say things like that, I'm I'm sort of glad that he's just a 200-year-old Frenchman. And yeah. yes, I will dis- insist that Wolverine is French because I am certain that the part of Canada that he was born in was still a French territory when he was born. Anyway, yeah, I, I can forgive Wolverine being an actual Wolverine, but I can't forgive actual real-life filmmaker Spike Lee being the kingpin. And, uh, that was also a thing in Marvel. I tried to forget so much about Marvel. And then you remind me. Remember how the protagonist is the time-traveling son of Ted Turner and Jane Fonda who are inexplicably still alive and married in the future? Uh, anyway. Anyway, uh, Stanley presents... 
the dynamic defenders. Too cold a night for dying. Written by Steve Gerber, art by Don Heck, inked by Vince Coletta, lettered by David Hunt, colored by Petra Goldberg, and edited by Len Wein. We open on Nighthawk in a civilian guise of Kyle Richmond, out with his girlfriend, a young Trish Starr, on a snowy winter night in New York. First things first, none of these people's equipment is surviving this blizzard. None of these people are dressed for this blizzard. What's going on here? Yeah, I feel like they should be wearing gloves at least. Your fingers are going to be freezing right now. There's a couple guys with microphones, and I'm just thinking, those things are going to be shot when the ice melts turns to water. I also do love Rhoda Barnett, syndicated TV gossip monger, calling Kyle Richmond an alleged beautiful person. Yeah, that is an amazing backhanded compliment. Side note, I only know who Rhoda Barnett is because there's a character in uh, Captain Carrot and the Zoo Crew who is a parody of her, Yankee Poodle, real name Rova Barkett. Oh, God. Yes, she is the direct inspiration for Yankee Poodle, minus the part about being a superhero and also a dog. Wait, so Rhoda Barnett's a real human? Yeah, yeah, huh. she is a real human being. As you were saying that, I was like, wait a second, Captain Carrot's a DC character. <laughs> so the tabloid gaggle, of which there's like just a mob chasing Kyle and Trish to their car, is basically just asking Kyle if they're going to get married yet, because apparently uh, Trish is a is a model and a genius with a master in psychology and she can play the piano and all these instruments and she could paint and all these cool things. And then there's Kyle Richmond. As we have established before, shitty Batman. He's so shitty that when he starts to start his car and drive himself for a change, the car immediately explodes. Well, I mean, that's admittedly not entirely his fault, but I mean... If you take it out of context, it doesn't say great things about him. Can't even start a car, right? So naturally, when they find out about this information, Doctor Strange and Valkyrie, using the time-honored disguise of coats, go to the hospital to check on their friend, which is when Doctor Strange runs into another one of his friends. James Winter, who he was friends with before his hands got all fucked up. They're still friends now, but they were friends then. Yeah, Doctor Strange has friends. Who'd have thunk it? I know. He has friends who aren't other superheroes or his servant. Yes. Or his apprentice slash girlfriend. <laughs> A perfectly normal and not at all creepy combination. <laughs> Doctor Winter is the doctor that's going to be operating on, on Nighthawk, and he wants Doctor Strange to help him. Obviously, he can't do the surgery with his hands, but he can consult, which I don't know if that's the best idea, like to have a doctor direct involved with, with someone that they have a close, like, emotional connection to? Isn't it like the whole bit behind the I can't operate on this boy, it's my son joke? Well, I mean, it's just Nighthawk. Yeah, I don't know. What's Doctor the Strange doesn't have that close of an emotional connection to him because he's Nighthawk. Now, we say that, but while Strange is in the operating room with Dr. Winter, it does say that he feels nervous and he's overcome with anxiety of being involved in this operation, and he pontificates on the strangeness of how, as a man who has calmly and coolly defended the entire universe time and again with one man's life in his hands because that man is his close friend now he feels this panic and dread inside him and he starts to think about how he wishes he could do more how he wishes he could summon the rest of the defenders to come aid in looking for what happened to their friend and like how he got blown up and he lists off Submariner who I guess he's back the Silver Surfer mm -hmm. Daredevil Damon Hellstrom Hawkeye and apparently even Power Man as a defender I'm betting he left when the first check bounced yeah the defenders being a non-team of super Heroes. There are plenty of heroes who show up and hang out for a little while and then leave. And they're technically defenders, even if they aren't, like, full members of the non-team. They get Dakota rings and everything. But Doctor Strange eventually, like, tells himself that most of them probably wouldn't answer the summons because they don't really care about Nighthawk that much. And because the defenders are, are meant to assemble, I mean, to gather in times of crisis to defend the universe. 
and Kyle Richmond is just one man. There is, however, one person Doctor Strange knows he can count on, who considers Bird knows his friend, and would rush to help him. The Incredible Hulk! Yeah, and he does indeed show up. He bursts through a wall and shouts that he wants to see his friend, because his friend is sick. Aww. And poor Hulk assumes that Doctor Winter is the one who hurt Nighthawk, and is about to beat him to death before Doctor Strange tells him that, that no, this man helped Nighthawk. He's a friend. And Hulk decides that that means that Doctor is Hulk's friend, too. Aww. He's a nice boy. Yeah, Hulk just likes making friends with people. I mean, yes, he smashes, but those are the two things that Hulk likes best. Smashing and friendship. And number three is beans. They leave through the hole in the wall that Hulk made that Doctor Strange promises to pay for, and they go back to the Sanctum Sanctorum to try to unpack this mystery. Among other things, apparently Nighthawk's gas tank was completely empty, which would be suspicious if Nighthawk was going to try and start his car, which smells of sabotage. <laughs> And we go immediately from there to the home of Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne. And hey, isn't that nice? They seem to be doing pretty well. Yeah, they're sitting together and watching a movie. And Hank has his arm around Janet's neck in a way that looks vaguely uncomfortable for her. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how that's supposed to work. But it sort of looks like cuddling. So I guess we'll take it. Yeah. Anyway, she's wearing this great yellow shirt with a green vest and these kind of flowy green pants and a really spiffy yellow belt and yellow shoes and she just looks really stylish and I appreciate that because Wasp is supposed to be a fashion designer and very fashion conscientious but a lot of artists forget that and she'll just be wearing something boring or something kind of ridiculous looking and this is very 70s and this is just an extremely groovy outfit. Good. Meanwhile, Hank is wearing a skin tight pink turtleneck. I don't know, maybe Janet picked that out for him. Well, I mean, it is very, very tight. Yeah. While they're watching late night movies, their, their night is interrupted by the news that Kyle Richmond and Trish Star were apparently blown to smithereens. And Hank, as he will do so for the entire issue, explicitly refers to Trish Star, a grown woman, as Trixie. Hmm. I mean, it's also a diminutive, like Trish, but like, that's not what she calls herself, dude. Just call her Trish. I know, it's it's very infantilizing. Yeah, it has fewer syllables. It's easy. So Hank assumes that the only person that could have done this to Trish was Egghead, one of Marvel's more ridiculous villains that you're supposed to take seriously. No, really, you are. The guy was a leader of the Masters of Evil and everything. No, I'm serious. This conehead-looking son of a bitch is supposed to be a dangerous supervillain. As far as Marvel's various and sundry super geniuses go, he's firmly D-list. Which makes him perfect for Hank. <laughs> so Hank yeah. decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. He goes into the closet and gets his yellow jacket uniform because he's going to go out in the middle of this blizzard and find Egghead, who's supposed to be dead, and go beat him up. Janet yeah. wants to help, but Hank tells her to stay home like a good woman, folk. Oh, we are gonna talk about this. Well, technically what he says is, not this time, Jan. I'm asking you to respect my wishes. I want to tackle Egghead alone, and not as Ant-Man. I've been working on some new gadgets lately, and they seem more suited to another one of my costume identities. So basically, he's just got some new toys, and he wants to use them, and he wants to do it alone, because he wants to prove that he's not the total loser that everyone thinks he is. I know, and that's a big part of Hank's character. It's just, this is the second time we've seen Janet on this podcast, and it's the second time she's done absolutely nothing. Oh yeah, she's absolutely being sidelined, and it's really 
annoying. Speaking of people who are annoyed, we find Egghead, who, as Hank mentioned, lost everything the last time Ant-Man defeated him. He has no resources, no money, no scientific gadgets, so he's a homeless man wandering the streets and staying in a shelter. Yeah, and when he goes into the shelter, he mentions that as soon as he is back into supervillainy, their kind will be eliminated first. And by their kind, he means homeless people. And of course, they don't like that. So they yeah, beat I mean, the shit out of him and throw him out in the snow. Yeah, I mean, it's an objectively horrifying statement, but they're just not taking him seriously at all, and so they just kick his ass, and it's the funniest thing ever. I am the greatest scientific intellect on the face of the planet! I swear I am! I am Egghead! Oh, poor Egghead. I'd feel yeah, bad for you if you didn't suck so much. Yeah, I mean, you talk about how you're gonna kill every single homeless person on the Earth. You can't be surprised when homeless people beat you up. You deserve that. Which leads us into Chapter 2. Flight, Flight of the Yellow Jacket. So we go to Yellow Jacket, flying through the skyscrapers of New York. I'm not sure how he's gonna find Egghead from that high up, but regardless, he does find Trish's hospital, where there's a giant hole in the wall that he assumes Egghead made. You know, as you can assume, they're kind of starting to fix it up, because it's the middle of winter, and there is a Hulk-shaped hole in their wall. Yeah, they have to try and patch it up, you know, relatively quickly for the sake of the patients, so here comes another costumed asshole flying through the hole in the wall. And he ignores a nurse shouting that he mustn't go in there. There are regulations. He just shrinks past her and goes into Trisha's hospital room. What I have written is that Yellow Jacket harasses and accosts and threatens multiple women on his way to talk to Trish, who he still refers to as Trixie, even to her face. It's a rough time for Trish because she got hurt pretty badly in the explosion and she might lose her arm. And she's there to basically confirm Hank's suspicions that it was Egghead who did because he tried to get her to give him some money and she said no because he's a supervillain. She was going to do supervillain things with it. Yeah, because Egghead is her uncle. Her right. shitty, shitty uncle. This confirms that it is not Nighthawk's fault despite the fact that, you know, Nighthawk, Nighthawk sucks and it would not be surprising if it was his fault. Speaking of Nighthawk, we go and check on him the next morning after, after Yellowjacket flies off into the night and we come back in the morning when the snow is finally stopped. And Kyle thinks that the only people that could have possibly tried to destroy him like this would have to be the Squadron Sinister, even though they are also seemingly dead. Which, I mean, death is pretty temporary in superhero comics. We say it's temporary now, but this is 1975. Gwen Stacy's only been dead for two years, and that was treated as, like, the most important event in Marvel Comics. And I mean, Bucky hasn't come back as an assassin yet, so... So we go back outside, where... Poor Hulk is being accosted by some stupid police officer. That's because I'm rude, isn't it? Just because he's standing there, just holding on to the Valkyrie's horse. And he's wearing a coat and a fedora, and for some reason that makes sure that nobody recognizes him as the Hulk. Or that cop is just very, very dumb. Yeah, the Hulk apparently operates under Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle rules. And once you put a coat and a hat on him, it doesn't matter that he's seven foot tall and four people wide. You can't tell he's the Hulk until he screams that he's the Hulk at you. Yeah, the cop initially assumes that, hey, a giant green guy and a winged horse, is this a movie stunt? Dude, you live in New York City in the Marvel Universe. You have to know that this shit is real. You have to know that the Hulk is on the news 
every other month for destroying a small town and causing some sort of ecological catastrophe and causing the U.S. military budget to triple overnight because Thunderbolt Ross needs a new robot. So thankfully, depending on how you look at it, Doctor Strange and Valkyrie arrive to stop Hulk from murdering the speed cop. Now they're going to go look for the Squadron Sinister. Even though Valkyrie rightly points out that sabotage and subterfuge isn't really the squadron style, and between the three of them, they could just very easily just, you know, killed Kyle. Where would Hyperion, Dr. Spectrum, and the Wizard even get a car bomb? And again, why? Hyperion could just drop a building on them, or Dr. Spectrum could just make a giant baseball mitt and throw them into space. Poor Valkyrie. Her reward for pointing out how weird this is is to be told to shut up, essentially. Anyway, uh, Yellow Jacket is hanging out on a rooftop when he spots Egghead passing by. He hasn't tracked him down or followed any clues. He just blindly bumps into him, practically. Yes! There's a big theme in this issue of basically just a, a string of ridiculous coincidences causing a comedy of errors. It's delightfully farcical. What isn't delightful is that Egghead says that he never meant to kill Trish. He only wanted to maim her. To take away, like, her beauty and, and her ability to make music and do all the things that she loved and to model and stuff because he was angry at her for not giving him the money and he wanted to punish her and make her feel small and weak. So rightfully so, Yellow Jacket just beats the shit out of him. Yes, for once Yellow Jacket is not the worst person in the room. Well, I mean, not the room. Not the worst person on the page. Yeah. It's kind of ironic that he's taking such a strong stand against violence against women, considering what's going to happen to him later. Thanks a lot, Jim Shooter. Yeah. I mean, in Yellow Jacket's defense, as it's often pointed out in with all the Hank Pym controversy, part of it is that there's basically a miscommunication between writer and artist. And the other thing is that Egghead did this deliberately. Well, okay. Regarding the mixed communication between writer and artist thing, uh, Jim Shooter said that he meant for it to be drawn like it was an accident. But later on in the issue, we see Jan wearing like sunglasses to hide the bruise in a way that is very clearly meant to evoke the stereotype of the battered wife hiding bruises from her abusive husband. So, like, I'm not saying he's a liar, but I do think it's possible that he's misremembering it. I don't think it's quite as clear-cut as, oh, it was just a simple miscommunication. He had no idea what it would look like. Hmm, yeah. Well, when you put it like that, I guess the issue is more complicated, but then people want to just write it off as to absolve actual giant gym shooter. Yes. So Yellow Jacket, his deed of violent, vengeful vigilantism done, goes back to the hospital and... Sadly, yes, Trish has lost her arm. Yes. He goes to talk to Nighthawk about it, and Nighthawk, still in his hospital bed, tells Yellowjacket that the only people that he believes could have done something like this was the Squadron Sinister, and he says that he's sent the rest of the Defenders to go looking for them. And Yellowjacket points out, hey, the Squadron's dead, idiot. Yeah, well, so is Egghead, right? And I mean, he's got a point. Yeah. And poor Yellowjacket's been up for, like, 24 hours at this point, and he goes, eh, who needs sleep anyway? Meanwhile... It turns out that the Squadron Sinister are not dead, and they just made a really weird-looking ray gun thing that they're going to use to do some evil things. Yeah, we go back to the Creighton Observatory, which is apparently just where the Squadron hangs out now. There is some good news coming out of this issue. Apparently Hyperion got over Nebulon's deception, and they worked things out because he's sad that Nebulon didn't come back to Earth with them. So that's nice. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, they've got a really weird-looking gun. It's a weapon of some kind that they're going to use 
in a plan that they're still coming up with. It looks like an extremely futuristic water gun. Yeah, like it is, as you said, a very weird gun. Apparently built for them by Nebulon. It's got like two rockets on the side and it's got some circly things and it's got a tube at the front with, with two little thingies hanging off it. it it's just very weird looking. And you might find yourself wondering, well, what exactly is the explanation for why neither Nebulon nor the squadron are dead and Nighthawk's hands remain squeaky clean? Apparently, the explosion we saw that seemed to be the murder of four men was in fact just Nebulon retreating to the dimension of Zar, where he would live among the, L- the Lurdites. Whatever nefarious plan the squadron intended to do, which would involve at least in some capacity getting revenge on Nighthawk, it doesn't matter, because Hulk just comes smashing through the wall in the middle of Hyperion is a monologue. I am here! With a mighty choom, which is not the first sound effect I would have expected for this. No, I would have thought more like a or a bacow or crash or something. Points for unexpectedness. I do love Hyperion points out, we haven't even been back for an hour yet. We haven't yeah, done anything. Yeah, guys, come on. There are rules for this kind of thing. We didn't have time to set up a plan. We didn't devise any traps or nothing. So unfair. So Hulk smacks a Hyperion into Dark Spectrum and Doctor Strange wraps up Wizard in the, in the vapors of Volta and seemingly this is going to be the shortest issue that we've had yet because that seems to be pretty much done and done. But no, the weird ray gun apparently absorbs energy rather than discharging it. And he steals huh. Hulk's gamma radiation, turning it back into Bruce Banner. Oh no! And Bruce Banner, being Bruce Banner, promptly passes out. And Valkyrie tries to spring into action but is just squeezed unconscious by Hyperion. <sighs> yeah, this, this entire episode is not great for Valkyrie. No. Or uh, any woman, I guess. Yeah. After, the, after that, the three-on-one situation allows the rest of the squadron to overwhelm Doctor Strange and knock him out, which leaves the Defenders defeated and leads into Chapter 3, Hearts, Hearts in Darkness. Yeah, the Defenders are all imprisoned. Uh, Bruce Banner is chained to a wall. Doctor Strange's hands are tied and he has a metal band around his mouth. And Valkyrie has her hands in a cement block behind her. Well, you'd think it would be a cement block, but according to the captions, she's trapped a block of adamantium alloy, which makes me wonder, where did the squadron get that? Why do they have it? They've only been on Earth for an hour. Maybe they just had it lying around. And also, where the hell are they? Does the observatory have a dungeon? It must, apparently. Now, listener, with Valkyrie being the first person to regain consciousness, you might assume that she's the one that's going to get the defenders out of this pickle, which means it's time for Final Jeopardy, and the category is Marvel Superheroes. And the answer is... Which member of the Defenders is going to get them out of this pickle? see what you've written. And you asked, is it Valkyrie? Oh, no. The question is Doctor Strange astral projecting. Let's see what you've wagered. $3,000. 
I'm terribly sorry. But yes, Valkyrie tries to strain out of her adamantium block, and you assume that maybe this is going to be the part where Valkyrie does something and rescues her friends. But no, Doctor Strange just does that thing where he becomes a ghost, and then he floats up and grabs Yellow Jacket, and Yellow Jacket shoots Bruce Banner to turn him into the Hulk, and there you go. Yes, that's what you get for being a woman and trying to do stuff in this issue, Val. We're very sorry. Speaking of trying to do stuff, we go back to the hospital, where Kyle is just getting out of bed, which he probably shouldn't be doing with that head injury, as the nurse rightly points out. And before he can tell her to, I don't know, shut up or something, a giant red hand comes through the wall, because the Squadron Sinister have come to kidnap their good buddy. Yes. So that's another hole in the wall of this poor hospital. Yeah, and, and it does nicely prove Valkyrie's point that a car bomb isn't really the Squadron Sinister's style. Their style is more smashing into a hospital to try and grab their ex-friend. Because when you're insanely powerful and evil and a little bit stupid, you don't necessarily go for, for the quiet, sneaky, subtle plan. So it's time for the Defenders versus the Squadron round two. Well, I'm just going to be right up front with you, listeners. Hulk and Yellow Jacket basically take out all three of them on their own. Yeah, good job, Hank, I guess. Yeah, like, nice work. He buzzes around in Wizard's ear, makes him slip on ice, and smashes him headfirst into the side of a building. And Hulk takes out Hyperion and Doc Spectrum with one of his signature thunderclaps because it disorients Hyperion and it makes the power prism explode for the second time. I mean, Doctor Strange at least does a couple of zappy spells, but poor Valkyrie does literally nothing. She catches Nighthawk when he falls out of the sky, and that is it. Yeah, and I mean, she could have just let him fall. It is Nighthawk. Maybe he would have landed in a snowbank. He could have comically landed on a snowbank, and they all would have laughed, and it would have been very silly. What's not silly is how this issue ends. Some weeks later, Trish has come out of the hospital, and it's snowing again, and obviously, reasonably, Trish feels, you know, she, she's very down about the loss of her limb and how she well, she can't be a model and she can't paint or do music or anything anymore and she has to like figure out what she's going to do with herself and she has to reevaluate her whole life essentially. Yeah, Trisha's storyline in this issue is is really interesting, you know, like she's this incredibly accomplished polymath who wants to open an artist commune with her earnings as a model and now all of her dreams have been destroyed because she wouldn't help her shitty supervillain uncle and it basically gets zero development and Trish only has like four lines of dialogue in this issue. Yeah, most of her dialogue is on this page, the last page where she shows up. And she's obviously thinking about breaking things up with Kyle because she doesn't want to date Nighthawk on top of all her other woes. But Kyle insists that, like, he doesn't pity her and that he still loves her and that he would want to be with her. And he insists that he does care about her and everything else. And she says, oh yeah? Well, marry me then, asshole. And Kyle rightfully is a little hesitant in being put on the spot like that. And so she just leaves him. Mm-hmm. Leaving him literally out in the cold. I've never said this before, but man, or fucking Nighthawk. Well, it's what he deserves. I don't know about that. He didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, I, I've been down on him in this issue, mostly because I know about other issues where he's shittier, but within the context of this issue, he, he's fine. He's stupid, but he's fine. In the context of an issue where he literally does nothing Nighthawky, he's fine. Yeah. It is sort of funny to me that he, that the that the cover of the issue shows Nighthawk in costume lying among the rubble, and that's literally the only time we see Nighthawk in his new costume in this issue. Yes. So Trish will at least appear a few more times. She will show up in future issues of The Incredible Hulk and The Avengers, so that's not the end of her story, at least. But that doesn't take away from how 
shitty this all is. Like, I'll be honest, this is the first issue for this podcast that I just did not enjoy. Yeah, aside from the fact that the squadron is only in it for a very short amount of time, and they don't really do much, this issue, this issue does not treat its female characters well at all. You've got Janet, who gets told by her husband not to go superheroing with him because there are some things a man has to do alone. And then she listens to him. Yeah, it's cold outside and I guess she just wanted to stay where it was warm. And then you've got Valkyrie. Valkyrie, who, she's this Asgardian warrior woman, and she has a pegasus and a sword, and she kicks ass, but not that we've ever seen so far in the whole run that we've been talking about. She swings her sword ineffectually against a bubble, and then she swings her sword effectively against a bubble, and then she doesn't, she only draws the sword once this issue. She's just there while other people are doing stuff. And then there's Trish Starr, who has a really interesting backstory, and is potentially this very fascinating character, and basically she's given little to no agency until she breaks up with Nighthawk at the end. So all she does is get maimed and give some superheroes some reason to go beat up some supervillains. She is there for man pain. But at least she gets to break up with Nighthawk. Even that's something I feel sort of iffy about because that in itself, I don't feel like that makes Trish look particularly good. Like, let's say Kyle does ask her to marry him. In what world would that marriage have lasted anyway? Like, not in the sense of like anything being necessarily wrong with either of them as people, but just the idea of like being coerced into a marriage because you didn't want a person that you had strong feelings for and you had just shared a traumatic experience with. You didn't want them to just vanish out of your life. This issue does not handle its female characters well. No, yeah. Like, there are some with Hulk wanting to be friends and him standing in the snow with his coat and hat and holding Valkyrie's horse's reins like a leash. That's nice. And I like everyone calling Valkyrie Val as, like, that's their friend. That's their little nickname for her. But also her name is Brunhild. That would be nice if you called her that. Her real name wouldn't be established until later on when her backstory on Asgard was more fleshed out. At this point in time, she's just a magical creation of the Enchantress placed in the body of Barbara Norris. Oh, well, I guess that's fine then, but there are some nice moments like that. There is a certain, like, enjoyability in the comedy of errors sort of feeling to it, like I talked about earlier, where stuff just happens. People just wander into each other, and they're all very confused. But for the most part, this comic, like Nighthawk describes life sometimes, stinks. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I did I did appreciate John Heck's art in this issue. Not so much the superhero stuff, but I like how he just draws people, and I like how he draws clothing. Slightly weird panel where Hank appears to be hugging Jan's neck aside. Yeah, that's a little weird, but, like, yeah, it's very, like, if nothing else, the art is nice, and it's nice to have an artist that can draw a detailed cityscape and things like that, so it has, like, mechanically, I could, you could say, it has a couple of nice things going for it, but overall, as a comic and as a story, yeah, Nighthawk's right about this one. Hopefully Hopefully, things will swing around to be something a little more fun when we come back next time with Avengers number 141 and the return of the Squadron Supreme. Okay. You can find us on SoundCloud and Stitcher and CastBox. You can follow us at SquadcastSupreme1 on Twitter. You can follow me at SunOSharknado93. And you can follow me on Twitter at Peter Volfrank. That's P-E-T-E-R-V-U-L-F-R-A-N-C. And you can find us on Facebook under The Squadcast Supreme. Yes, we're on Facebook now. I forgot to mention that last time. Yeah, good old Facebook. I don't think anyone will be taking information from our podcast page to destabilize Central American democracies. Hopefully. Yeah. So long, squatters. So long. Until next time. Do 
Yeah, man. 